Chris looks like he's talking to No, it's, it's a church new year, Peter. Come on, man. It's a church new year. We have the mark, the gospel of Mark this year. Advent, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shorter readings. Yes, Mark is shorter. That is for sure. I heard a joke once from a, about a pastor who says to his congregation, I want you to go home and read the 17th chapter of Mark's gospel. That was the assignment for them to go and do that. So they all go home. Next week, service begins. Pastor says, all right, who read Mark 17? Hands go up. Goes, there is no Mark 17. The sermon today is about honesty. So... <laughs> These tricky pastors, they can't trust them. I mean, I don't know. Oh, boy. Hey, Father, after class, can I get like one minute on the paper? Just a question for you. Sure. Right. It's not a hard one, I promise. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. If Chris is asking the question, we have to break class 45 minutes early. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. Nice try, George. Nice try. But I don't think we're going that, that direction. <laughs> and Father, the definitions that, you know, we can pull the definitions from lots of places. Are you primarily looking for these definitions to come from our notes or a combination of the notes and the reading assignments? Or you know, Yeah, it could be notes. It could be the catechism. I mean, the catechism glossary, not to give everything away here, but like everything is right in the catechism glossary. You can't go wrong with that. That's easy 30 points, fellas. I mean, you can't. That's like just like a, like a, like a layup. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, that's the old that's the old O'Reilly easy 30 points he talked about. Here's the, fa- here's the fastball coming up. Yeah, right now. Yes. Listen, man. So I, I, I know so O'Reilly. My cash I, is I have O'Reilly as my thesis advisor. So I go to the Greg, uh, the Greg in Rome and look up his thesis. I just tell the guys. His doctoral thesis was 458 pages long. Well, I know it was. Yeah, four hundred. <laughs> I was I was a seminarian when he came back from Rome with his doctorate. So we had him for uh, ecclesiology. So he goes, fellas. He goes, your paper this semester is twelve to fifteen pages. I don't want to hear that's too long, Father. <laughs> I just finished one that's four hundred fifty-eight pages. I want to hear how long that that paper assignment is. So, All right, Father. Yeah. Okay. His bibliography was like forty pages long. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, well, he's also a genius, which doesn't hurt. Yeah, he is pretty smart. Except he plays a banjo. I can't figure that one out. <laughs> he's a well-rounded individual. He went to um, Regis High School, Columbia, undergraduate. So he's no slouch. His brother went to Princeton. So is a smart family. But no respect. No respect. No That's respect. right. No <laughs> That's right. I did submit my thesis. My thesis idea to him was the um, solitaire, the um, um, salvation, the salvation writings of Rodney Dangerfield. But he did not accept that as a, <laughs> as a potential. Well, as he would say, he's well versed in the classics. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh boy, we've we've heard that line a couple of times. Well, I'm sure you. I'm sure you have. I, I've heard it also. Yeah. As well as I've got a voice made for uh, radio. 
Face for radio. Face for radio. Face for radio. His father's a priest as well, right? Father Morgano? Dan O'Reilly, yeah, his brother. Younger brother is a priest, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Dan is the um, is the chaplain for the universities for the Archdiocese. He works down by Columbia, down by that area, upper Manhattan. A lot of those people are. It's going to be interesting to be a chaplain for Columbia University with their very strange theology play. You know, it's funny. Yeah. You know, Focus is the um, that you know, the campus ministry people that kind of run all over the country. And Focus missionaries have largely given up in New York because there was like nothing they could do. How bad, how bad we are in New York. Sad. But it kind of tells you that there was there was no way even like, for to evangelize because there's just such a... Uh, and that there was no way of even trying to bring the gospel um, any kind of receptivity wasn't there which is sad because uh, really Focus is a great a great place for vocations also one of my seminaries right now is a Focus missionary although actually right now I'm working with three guys this year who are all military veterans two are in the military currently and coming in as military guys and one is a, is a Marine Corps vet so it's a great. Um, the military is a great space for vocations to grow, discipline, sacrifice, you know, team mentality, all that stuff. It's part of the priesthood. So guys are drawn to that. They're faithful guys. So it really, kind of, it shows how that kind of works out. Interesting. All right. I think we're mostly all here. Missing a couple of guys. No, who are we missing? John Williams. Okay. Oh, yeah, we're John's John. Here. No good signing on now. Who is? Doug. 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 No? Okay. Hey, Father, quick question for you. Yeah. Um, the second ex the second um, um, example you gave for us mm -hmm. on the final. Yeah. I'm not sure what the protocol is, but if you're in a hospital <laughs> and someone asks you a question like that, is there a protocol to have the hospital chaplain involved at that point? I mean, is there a protocol in a hospital? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm approaching it, John, is a good question. I'm approaching it as if either you are the hospital chaplain. Okay. Or let's say there is no real, let's say there's no local chaplain who's there. Let's say it's a Jewish chaplain, you're a Catholic, and she's a Catholic. Okay. You're going to approach it from a Catholic perspective. Understood. So that's kind I of just, assumed in, in the question. Um, but you're right, though. This was a, this was a Catholic hospital, for argument's sake. There was yeah. a priest who was there. By, by proper just deference to his being there, You'd want to be able to kind of ref ask him for his input in that situation. If you weren't sure, would you just ask hospital administration if there was already a Catholic oh, yeah, chaplain? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But again, don't don't overthink it, John. No, I'm not. Yeah. This yeah, is just doesn't get you out of answering the question. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. <laughs> just, um, we just right. We deferred it to the chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> no. You can't do that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I assume it's a Catholic hospital. Kind of really <laughs> I, I thought, thought. Um, no, no seriousness though. If it was a real life situation, well, yeah, you want to refer to the chaplain. There was a chaplain there, kind of get his input or her input, any problem you had there, um, for sure. Just to get somebody else involved in the conversation would be good. Um, yeah, definitely. And John also asked a question earlier, which was a good question. He asked me via email, was the the spiritual condition of the couple in the first example, and the condition of the, the woman in the second. 
And in the first couple, the you know the two uh, new parents, in the first condition, to assume they've been baptized, confirmed, first communion, um, haven't been to church probably in 10, 15 years, went away to college probably, um, if even before then, no real strong faith life is there, which is a real world situation. Because you're going to find that 90% of your couples that come to you are one, living together, and B, and two, aren't going to church. I'm giving you guys the most real world, like this is going to happen to you, figure it out kind of situation. And in some parishes, the deacon is the one who the pastor asks to do intake of baptisms. It's very possible that maybe may you, as the first person they talk to, when they call the church for the baptism. And for the second case, the woman at the hospital, you know, she again is a baptized Catholic confirmed for mass attendance, Christmas and Easter. You know, they were Paul, they were Paul, Paul the sixth referred to as baptized pagans. And the reality is most of our people are baptized pagans. Not meant to be derogatory, meant to be reality. That's what we're dealing with. So mission territory, fellas, is not Africa or Asia. Mission territory is the Bronx, it's Bridgeport, it's New Haven, Staten Island, it's Manhattan, it's all over. That's mission territory. So important for us to have a sense of that as we kind of begin our, our formation, right? Let's so the right. woman in the vegetated state has not received the sacraments of the sick, correct? Or do you want to say she has? Mm-hmm. You know what? It depends upon how you want to take it. Okay. Yeah, it's left open and the purpose to give you guys some latitude. Okay. Of, and you're pushing it from what you want to give me as a perspective. It's a, good, it's a good point though, John. Yeah. Let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Seed of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. St. Andrew, pray, pray for, for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So, firstly, we have a couple of cases here, fellas, recently, of life imitating class or vice versa i was at, in church at the parish on wednesday morning and at the mass when we come up in the sacristy so father, i have to get your guidance on something so okay what's what's going on so father i'm taking medication for my arthritis and i found out that the medication that i'm taking was originally derived from aborted fetal cells am i doing something wrong taking the medication he said, I, I told my doctor what was going on. I'm getting a new prescription for a different kind of medication, not that issue. But I'm concerned. I have four doses left. Can I take those or wait until the new medication comes? And I thought, my gosh, here, here we go, you know. So in talking to her about it, what she, in researching it, which is amazing, she researched it, but she found out that the, the cell line came from a, a 1970s in China kind of a situation. And in thinking about it, what I realized was, okay, if we're going to apply, thinking about it, I had been to harvest. If we're going to apply principles here, let me ask you guys this question. So the first principle is, is the cooperation formal or material? 
which cooperation for her is it? So formal is you agree with the evil, material is you don't agree with the evil. So which one would it be? Material. 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 So it's material and it's median. Third condition, is it proximate, meaning she's close to the evil, or is it remote, meaning she's distant from the evil? Remote. 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 With material, it's immediate, it's remote. On that standard, there is little to no cooperation at all with evil. I told her, don't worry about taking the medication, finish what you have right with you. But she was right in finding a medication that would not have the same moral difficulties her current medication did. So it isn't enough just to be separated from the evil. If we can, if it's possible, we should try and change our medication, change our, our course here a little bit to find a better way of addressing this, right? In researching more, what I found out was a lot of these medications, including the Regeneron that was given to Trump when he had COVID, including that, was derived in the 1970s. It was something called HEK-293. HEK-293. HEK stands for Human Embryonic Kidney. It was the, the source of the cell line. 293 was the number of experiments that were being done on a cell line to find this current this current cell course. And what doctors say is the manipulation that was done to these cells no longer even resemble fetal cells any longer. So even that mitigates the evil here a little bit. But again, this is 50 years ago talking about. So not good, abortion is always an evil thing, but it does give us separation between what was done 50 years ago and what's being given to us now. All right? So we see there is some spectrum, but the point of this, mentioning this, is here was a case where something that is discussed in class became a real-world situation that I faced in the sacristy two days later. And again, if I'm not there, the priest isn't there, and somebody asks you for that understanding or guidance, it's important for us to have at least a cursory sense of what we're talking about. Because if you were to say to her, yeah, you know, it's not right, taking that medication, that's not, that, that isn't accurate, it's wrong. And you're giving her now extra anxiety, feel like you shouldn't have it. Or if you say to her, well, it's fine, don't worry about it at all, well, that's wrong too. Because there definitely is some element of changing medication is a good thing. So precision, precision and nuance 
are very important when it comes to these more complicated moral questions. All right? Questions or anything that was not clear about that? Okay, good. The second current event that came to us was um, recently the governor of New York said that churches could only have 25 parishioners if you were in an orange zone or 10 if you were in a red zone. Now, the impact this had on me personally is my parents live in the orange zone on Staten Island. So when I was home on Wednesday with the mask kid home with me figuring I'll say mask to the house because the pastor rightly so said look we can't I can't properly figure out how to have 25 people in church. It'll be a fight in front of the church. So now we're going to have to go back to live streaming everything again. And most of the, par most of the parishes in the orange zone, I know we're going to go back to live streaming. Now, I'll give you an example of how, how arbitrary this is. My home parish seats 1,200 people. You could fit in there 450 without there being any kind of concern about distancing or spread or any of that stuff. 25 seemed really arbitrary. And Wednesday night at 11.50, the Supreme Court agreed. The Supreme Court issued an emergency injunction, as they call it. It was not a decision necessarily, it was an injunction, meaning it will at some point be decided in an actual court case. But the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, decided that it is a violation of religious freedom, religious liberty, to impose this restriction on churches when other essential businesses like, like, like uh, liquor stores, grocery stores, say again? Walmart. Walmart, acupuncturists, that these places are kept open with no restrictions. But churches are. That became a major concern. So I plan next week to talk about religious freedom. But I'm going to go ahead a little bit here and that part of the lesson now to give us some sense of what was decided, why it was decided, and the whole, the whole nature of the question of religious freedom. Because we hear about it a lot, but what does it mean? How do we get it? All right, so here we go. All right, we hear a lot about the separation of church and state. We hear that all the time, right? It's mentioned all the time in, in the media. But here's the thing, the Constitution never uses that terminology. The First Amendment simply says this, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that's it. That's all it says. Simple, the point, brief. I came about because you have to realize that in Europe, before the 18th century, the way things were, the king or queen of the country, if they were Catholic, the country was Catholic. If they were Protestant, the country was Protestant. I could change overnight. And oftentimes, what would happen is, that the party not in power was persecuted, they were tortured, they were burned, it was terrible. 
been wars over this stuff. The founders realized we have to do something here to make sure this doesn't happen in this country. Remember the Puritans at Thanksgiving, the Puritans came to this country for the purpose of religious freedom to escape persecution. Speaking of which, Thanksgiving, back a little bit of the back, a little bit of sidetrack here for a second. People don't realize the Catholic connection to the first Thanksgiving. Okay. Squanto. So Squanto in sixteen fourteen was tricked to board a British ship to go to Europe. He was tricked there was a slave ship. He was brought to Europe as a slave. The Franciscan priests in Europe met him, bargained for his freedom, and free Squanto. So grateful to them was Squanto. He was baptized Catholic. He moves to England and spends two years there working in the shipyards in England and then returns to the New World. His tribe was wiped out by disease. The Wampanoag, living in Massachusetts and Plymouth, take him in as one of their own. Because Squanto is fluent in the Wampanoag dialect and English, when the Puritans come, he's able to be an intermediary, translating for them and causing a kind of a comedy between the English and the natives. Here we have Squanto, a good Catholic boy who has a connection to Thanksgiving. Interesting, right? I thought so, at least. Absolutely. So, yeah, kind of cool. Mm. Anyway, a little bit of a side by the Puritans there. But, at any rate, so yeah, so the issue is that the Constitution says very little on the issue of religious freedom. However, what it is not saying there, it is not saying freedom of worship. It's a very different thing. Freedom of worship simply means I can gather in my church on Sunday morning or do a Saturday, Saturday afternoon and have my prayers. But I cannot bring my faith out of the church doors. I can't have it in my workplace. I can't have it in my outside engagements with people. It's only in church. I can worship freely, but I can't live my faith life authentically outside of a church or a synagogue or mosque setting. It is not what the Constitution says. It's allowing us the freedom to be able to, A, definitely worship for sure, but B, to bring our faith outside the walls of the church and to live our faith in our workplaces, in our businesses, in what we do. It's very important that we realize a distinction because sometimes people who don't like religion or religious liberty will say, well, I respect freedom of worship. Yeah, sure you do. But the minute it gets out of the church doors, they got a problem with it. So, you know, again, verbal engineering precedes societal engineering. If you control language, you control the world. So how we use words are very, very important. Now, all right. The idea of separation of church and state, that terminology was first given by Roger Williams in 1644. We used that in the speech he gave, kind of a off-the-cuff moment in a speech. It wasn't anything completely formal. But Thomas Jefferson picked it up, and Jefferson used it. But he said that it does not 
affect military chaplains, religious schools, religion in schools. Jefferson believed that the state should not control religion and religion should not control the state. But there is a place, he believed, for religion in the state. Because the founders understood, they were deists, they were not Christians, most of them. They were deists, so they understood the value of virtue, the value of living a life that is rooted in faith. And the truth of the matter is, when the, when the Tocqueville came to the U.S. in, 18, in 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman writing about the U.S., remarked about the religiosity of the United States. <coughs> and in fact, to this day, right now, the U.S. remains one of the most religious countries in the world. All of our issues, all of our problems, all of our secularism, the U.S., by and large, has remained relatively religious in comparison to other countries elsewhere. Go to Europe, go to some of the European cathedrals, these grand works of art and architecture, they're museums, they're empty. So at least in the U.S., there's a sense still of religion and the importance of religion in the public square. But over the last 60 years or so, there's been a kind of a depreciation of that reality. There was a Supreme Court case, Engel versus Vitale, which said that you could not have prayer in public schools. One of the first blows to religious liberty. And that, of course, has bled over, where you can't begin a football game and a college football or high school football game with a prayer because that's, you know, blurring the lines, church and state. You know, all these issues have become problematic. So we take God out of the classroom, but put, put, put uh, transgender theory in. Yeah. Interesting, interesting uh, trade-off there. Anyway, it's a whole other, whole other discussion for a different day. Um, all right. But one of the most important decisions that affects us right now was in 1990. Supreme Court case called Employment Division v. Smith. Employment Division v. Smith. It's the case out of Oregon. In Oregon, there were two Native American men who worked at a drug rehab facility. In their ritualistic religion, in their, in their tribal practices, they used peyote for their, in the rituals. When they were drug tested, they were positive for peyote. And they were fired without unemployment benefits because they were positive for a drug. So they came back and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We tested positive in our, in our religion. We use this. We don't use it outside of our religious, liber religious practices. So we use it in our, in our worship. So they sued the state of Oregon for discrimination because they were being fired using something that was in their religious practices. The Supreme Court came down in the decision of six to three and said that the Native American guys were not eligible to receive benefits. They were fired justifiably. And the argument that was given by Justice Scalia, actually, what Scalia said was the rule against peyote, the law against peyote, was a universally applicable law. 
meaning it applied to everyone. And you cannot carve out an exception for every religious practice, every religious ritual, or you have anarchy. So you ruled in favor, 63, of the state and not in favor of the two men who were fired for using peyote in their religious uh, ritual. Now, in the dissenting opinion, the dissent said, well, wait a minute. First of all, they said the government did not have a compelling reason for denying benefits to these guys. In fact, they know that in this tribe, they actually argue strongly against peyote outside our religion. So this tribe actually is on the forefront of fighting against drug abuse. It's a problem. Secondly, the government of Oregon used the least used a restrictive means to enforce this. The men did no harm by doing this. There was no good reason to deny these men their benefits. But still, of course, the case stood. This caused a major, major uh, outcry uproar in the community. Because people say, wait a minute, for many, many years, religious freedom always was predominant over other issues. Now, the court is telling us that's not the case. So how are we going to answer this? Well, three years later, 1993, is a bill put before Congress. The bill was sponsored in the, in, in the House by then Congressman of New York, Charles Schumer, and was co-sponsored in the Senate by the late Ted Kennedy. It passed the House by unanimous voice vote and the Senate, 97 to 3, they called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And this law essentially has three main principles. The first principle is this. Does the law impose a substantial burden on sincere belief. Does the law impose a substantial burden on sincere belief? Secondly, does the government, does the government have a very good or compelling reason for the burden? Does the government have a very good or compelling reason for the burden. Third, is this, what the government is doing, is this the least restrictive means? So the first one again, does the law impose a substantial burden on sincere belief? Two, does the government have a compelling or very good reason for the burden. Three, is this the least restrictive means? All right. That became the, the, the law, frankly. And President Clinton happily signed it into law in 1993. Now, to give a sense or a case study of this, to understand what this kind of can be applied. There's a case in Florida 
a man was arrested for serving the homeless in areas where there was high class tourism. And you could not serve the homeless in those areas according to city ordinances. So the first question is, does the man doing that part of a church have sincerely held beliefs that are being burdened? Yes, he does. He's being right held homeless, according to his church, he's being burdened. Yes. Two, does the government have a compelling reason? Well, sure, because tourism is important. It brings in money, that brings in income to the, to, the, to, the, to the state. So you have to do this. Third, is what the government is doing arresting him, something from doing this, the least restrictive means? The answer to that question is no. What the government did was, listen, move 100 yards further away and do your thing there and all will be well. That's what happened. So I was released from prison. He was able to disrupt the homeless because they ruled in favor of this man's religious freedom to be able to serve the homeless by not, not interfering with cases of tourism in that area. Okay? Four years later, in 1987, the Supreme Court ruled that you could not impose the Federal Restoration Act on the states. You can't impose a federal law on states. Remember, in our country, federalism, and the federal government and state governments. So what happened was 22 states, Connecticut included, New York, of course, is not, but 22 states created their own Religious Freedom Restoration Acts to be employed, to be used in their states. Now, this has been adjudicated and judged in all kinds of cases that come before the, you know, the Supreme Court with this and different other situations. So the first, one of the first cases we have was in 2014, the Hobby Lobby case. And Hobby Lobby, of course, is a family-owned business. And the question was, as a family-owned business, can they, can they be um, coerced into providing contraception, which they believe causes abortion in some cases? And the court ruled five to four that you cannot compel a family-owned business to provide something against their deeply held religious beliefs. So that was 2014 Hobby Lobby with the case with that. In 2000 and I believe 14, in Colorado, a man named Phillips had a, had a masterpiece cake shop and it was known for his amazing capacity to build make cakes. A couple married in Massachusetts, where it was legal at that point to be married uh, civilly before it was a national law, went to Colorado, went to Phillips, and said, bake us this cake. And Phillips was like, I can't do that. You know, I'll, I'll, ser I'll serve you, but I can't provide a cake for a marriage wedding ceremony. This is very different. He's not saying to them, I won't sell you something. I won't give you something. What he's saying is I will not be part of a wedding ceremony as the person who's a baker with a cake. And he wanted a um, rainbow filling and he wouldn't do it. So the 
Colorado Civil Rights Commission came down hard on this guy, called him a Nazi, called him, you know, a bigot, all, all the typical terminology of, you know, chastising a person as they do these days, and ruled against him. He was, he was, he was fine for not baking the cake for this couple. But a bakery down the street did it for free for this couple. So, see the problem here? Now what happened was, Phillips pursued this. And in 2018, went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled seven to two that the way in which the Colorado Civil Rights Commission handled it was completely hostile to religion, well beyond the bounds of simple anti-discrimination laws, and ruled in favor of Masterpiece Cake Shop and Phillips. But it did not rule on discrimination. It simply said Colorado Civil Rights Commission was so beyond the pale in their criticisms and their decision here that we're going to rule in favor of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Like an interesting that worked out. Other cases, not, not so well. There have been cases of florists. There have been cases of photographers. There have been cases of wedding venues where deeply held beliefs have run up against a couple wanting to get married there, and they've been fined. In some cases, they're point of having to close down because of these issues. Now, it seems to me that the problem here is there's other places, a lot of catering halls, a lot of photographers, a lot of florists, a lot of bakers. You can find somebody who will do this. But to challenge a religious person who you know is not going to say yes to this is to cause a problem that does not exist. Looking for a fight, frankly. Yeah. And it's coming for us, boys. Let me tell you, we're next. We're next. It is a constitutional right. If we say no, how dare we do that? Remember, when you're in the deacon, you become a civil servant in terms of marriages. So the license for marriages. When you sign it, it's legal, it's law. So it's really gonna be a problem when this comes down to us. Now, what's interesting is it already does affect some religious organizations. You think about the Little Sisters of the Poor. The Little Sisters of the Poor are an order of sisters who are, whose whole life is to provide quality, palliative, end-of-life hospital care for free to the poor and the indigent. And yet, they're being treated like they're pariahs. Because they're, when, the, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, the ACA, it said you have to provide contraception to your employees. The sister said, wait a minute, it's against our beliefs. We don't want to do this. And they sued the, the HHS who mandated this. In 2017, one of the first things President Trump did was an executive order which allowed the HHS to exempt the sisters from this law, from this mandate. But the government, or not the government, one of the, one of the organizations sued Trump, sued HHS, 
saying, wait a minute, you have no constitutional right to do this. You can't, you cannot tell, you can't just, by executive order, get rid of the mandate. The Supreme Court ruled a couple of years ago that indeed the sisters do have the right to be exempt from this. What Trump did was not unconstitutional. Here's the problem. They only ruled on the constitutionality of what Trump did, not on the sister's case itself. And Joe Biden has already said on day one, he's going to rescind his executive order to force the sisters to pay for contraception. Now, here's the deal. When Biden does that, they're going to re-sue him, the sisters. If that goes to the Supreme Court, as currently constituted, there is no way, it's not a snowball's chance in hell, this current court is ruling against the sisters. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. If this is in fact rescinded by, the, by, by President Biden, they will go to the court, and this court will, will almost assuredly vote in favor of the sisters when it comes to this issue. But even get to that point is it's kind of madness, you know? Mm. Crazy to me. Now, we're going to see more and more of this as the years go by here. Now, those people who disagree with us on these issues say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the same thing when getting married to somebody of the opposite race or the legal. So all you're doing is substituting gender for race, but it's the same discrimination. It's not. And here's why. First of all, there is nothing constitutive. There is no main element to with race when it comes to marriage. Whether you're black or white, that's make a difference. But your sex has a huge difference when it comes to marriage. Race, unimportant. Gender, very important, first of all. Second of all, every society up to recent times have never doubted that marriage was a man and a woman. From Plato to Aristotle to Aquinas to Gandhi, across cultures, across faiths, across time, nobody has ever said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, 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 Actually, marriage can be between two men, two women, three people. Never the case. Never the case. In fact, for Plato and Aristotle, in ancient Greece, homosexuality was celebrated in those cultures. And because of that, some ancient Greek writers said that gay relationships were better than heterosexual ones. Because at least, you know, if you're heterosexual, you have to, um, your, your purpose of getting together is to have children, have something else come from you. But if you're gay, it's simply a sign of your love for your partner. That's all that it is. Nothing else is needed, just love for your partner is there. So in those cultures, actually lauded homosexuality, but never did they say, as a result of this now, gay people should get married. Nobody ever said that. So it's not a homophobic or ancient, you know, ritual here we're kind of bringing back. 
always been that way. Okay? Very different. When it came to race, race was the laws against intermarriage were put in this country before it was even a country, were put on the books for racial purity. It was a white supremacist ideology. We don't want whites marrying blacks because they are inferior. That was the mindset to put these laws on the books. It was a horrible thing. So when the Supreme Court and the civil rights movement, all those things, began to rescind those laws, it was the correction of bad laws that actually were put in the books centuries before. It was not overturning three, 4,000 years of what was always understood. In fact, the first case of interracial marriage being approved by a court was in California. The Supreme Court in 1848, a Catholic couple, inter interracial, had gotten married and it was not considered legal and they sued. And what happened in those areas, in California, Supreme Court of California ruled it was unconstitutional to have race as a element for marriage. Years later, Supreme Court, Loving versus Virginia, in that case, they ruled that nationally, it was, it was a terrible um, injustice to make race an issue with marriage. And in fact, the bishops of the country, other religious Christians, lobbied very strongly on behalf of the interracial marriage and causing, um, causing there to be this opening, whereas now, of course, gender is a whole different thing. So race and gender are not the same. When people try to use that, and they do all the time, they have an answer for them. Okay, this is very important because one of the main attacks against the church, against religion, against Catholicism, against Christianity, is that we are bigoted when it comes to the issues of of uh, marriage and stuff of that nature. So it's very important that we have a sense of how this is going to go down. Okay, questions or comments? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, two two questions slash comments for you. Um, one of them is that uh, I've spoken to uh, a number of uh, priests uh, lately, especially with in anticipation of perhaps this new administration coming in and perhaps setting their sights on the Catholic Church, uh, as we suspect. And they've all said sort of the same thing to me, that it may come to a point where the Catholic Church has to get out of the wedding business in that it limits its involvement or participation in the performing in, in the in the sacramental of marriage or matrimony but not on the civil side of of legal marriage sort of like they do in europe now where you have to go to city hall on day one you get legally married before the justice of the peace civilly and then the next day if you choose to uh, partake of the sacrament you'll go to the church and you'll receive the sacrament of, of, of marriage so i was told by a number of priests that that might be something we have to think of and then the second question comment on this is i find it frightening sometimes father because i'm reading more and more of of a number of priests out there and and uh, dare i say it even bishops that seem to be giving mixed signals on this whole issue as well I think you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. that's kind of concerning too when I think it's kind of, it's fairly clear. Yeah. 
Well, excellent, excellent point. Good questions. The first point about marriage and getting out of the marriage industry, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get out tomorrow. Forget it. Get out of it. Because we're going to, we're going, we're just, we're waiting for a problem to happen that can be avoided. Now, some priests would say, you're giving in then. You're acquiescing to the culture. Listen, all the ones acknowledge in reality. And the reality is, they haven't come from us yet, but they're going to. After Obergefell was passed five years ago, the militant homosexuals out there who could pass this law wanted to go after the churches. The moderates who supported it said, stop, don't do that. You one, don't spike the football. But more and more, the moderate voices are being drowned out. That becomes a real concern. Last year, one of the debates with some kind of candidates, one of them said that if a religious institution refuses to acknowledge or perform same-sex marriages, they will lose tax-exempt status. If that were to happen, we'll be in house churches again very soon. Because you never could afford the property taxes of some of these churches before it closed down. That'd be the end of it. Now, I don't think Biden has that view. Harris might. Biden, I don't think, does. So I don't think it's going to happen just, just, just now. Right. But I, I'd be nervous about that. And I think getting out of the civil marriage industry is reading the tea leaves, use a pagan metaphor, to um, figure out what's happening here. If we do that, you're right, Paul, we do what they do in New York. So on the night of the wedding rehearsal, they first go to City Hall, go for a judge, have him, you know, give them their consent is exchanged according to the law, but they know that is not the marriage. You're not married yet in the eyes of God. Come to church the next day, get married in church, vows, rings, prayers, the whole the whole thing, and now you're married in the church and you're married civilly, and it avoids that problem. I am shocked, actually, that in the last five years it hasn't ha- happened yet. Because you would think that that it would. Father, I just I'm yeah, wondering, listening to Paul and you talk, I the, the concept makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But with so few people getting married in the church as it is now, yes. wouldn't this result in even fewer coming back to the church to be married? I mean, it's hard to predict, yeah. I guess, but well, I, in my mind. I, I don't know. I think I think that it could be a matter of, look, when the couple calls the church to get married, they, they don't really, I'm not sure even they even realize that we're the ones making it legal. I'm not sure they even understand that that's what's, what's going on here. Yeah, it's a we simply propose it as, well, for legality purposes, go to a judge the night before, but come to us. I don't think you'd see a big drop-off, dog. You might, but I don't, I don't think you would. But that well, is a concern. Yeah. And the Bishop's Conference, USCCB, has been reluctant to rule on this because of those concerns. Because bishops are saying, well, wait a minute. Think about it. If you're a bishop in Nebraska, you're a bishop in Kansas or Oklahoma, it's not a concern of yours. What's going to happen in Oklahoma, Nebraska, or Kansas? But California, New York, New England, yeah, that's a concern now for us. So some of them are saying, for us, not a problem, but for other bishops, of the diocese, it is. So I wonder about that. That's a good point. A good question. 
but I'm, I'm concerned about the the nature of religious freedom um, moving forward here because of some of the some of the signs that we're getting. Um, so it's just, it becomes a concern, but I think um, it's worth worth our discussion here this evening about this topic because you're I only going to thought, Father. Yeah, completely. Ahead, sure. In the reading that we had, which just I'm sure it's not a coincidence that it actually hits right on what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. In paragraph 14, and I marked this when I read it because it just struck me as such great prophecy. So he's talking about the encyclical written a hundred years before he's writing now, mm-hmm. back in 1991. And in paragraph 14, he talks about how the interests of various nations. Now, let's put in interest groups in replace for that language was replaced by attempts to impose absolute domination of one's own side through the destruction of the other side's capacity to resist using every possible means, not excluding the use of lies, terror tactics against citizens and here weapons of mass destruction. But it ends saying atheism and contempt for the human person place the principle of force above that of reason and law. What's changed, right? That's right. Except they've and now bought it a strategy. Mm-hmm. Jump a second. I mean, he's writing out of experience of living under communism and Nazism. So you saw firsthand what, it was what like. those ideologies look like and how they could be imposed upon people. This article was written in 1981, so it's written two years after the, you know, the Berlin Wall falls, communism coming to an end. What he's saying, essentially, there, I don't think that we're beyond this concern now. This is still a real thing. Because evil gets repackaged, rebranded, new bow put on it. But evil, at the end of the day, is still evil. It may look different a little bit, but it carries the same genetic code as all the evil before it. So, you're right. You're right, Doug. It's definitely uh, a concern we have to have. So, any other questions about? Yeah, go ahead, Paul. What was the second part of my question? Also about why there seems to be more and more um, uh, comments coming from from the, the clergy uh, that seem to be hesitating on 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 this gay marriage issue, and they. they I don't know. There seems to be some mixed signals, not actually coming out and 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 and, and standing for it, but there just seems to be a little bit of mixed signals going on. Well, some of my brothers, Paul, like to peddle the mixed signals and cause confusion, and some of them are very smart, and they know how to say a lot of things without saying or be over the line. They're they're clever. Now, I will tell you that I mean this is the one that there's no there's no debate about this issue in a magisterial sense. We have ruled on this. But Francis has tried to put a softer touch, to the edge off of it. And that's laudable. It's a good thing. The problem is some people use that as a bludgeon to put forth their own ideology about marriage, about family, about homosexuality. And the concern also, Paul, is you know cancel culture, man. It's becomes a real problem, even for us. I mean, I'm not on you. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter or anything like that. But if you dare to post anything, which might be a little bit beyond 
the mainstream or the, or the main idea of the current time period, you face serious backlash. A couple of years ago in Minnesota, before Obergefell happened, two years ago, they voted in Minnesota on same-sex marriage and to vote no on the law that had currently prohibited it from happening. A friend of mine's sister put on her, her lawn uh, a sign saying yes on Proposition 4, whatever it was. Overnight, this thing was burned down. People came to her house at night and burned the sign down on her lawn. It gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. There's a militancy with this that's kind of terrifying, frankly. And if you dare and speak out against it, major problems can result. So it's going to take courage, gents. It's not time for, for half measures. And U.S. clergy have to realize that we that are, you know, daring to be in holy orders are the front line, the target of a lot of this stuff. So it doesn't mean that we're going to be, you know, up there in our vestments looking nice on Sunday morning. That's great. But at the end of the day, fellas, it's a lot harder when the challenges come to us by our people and by the culture. You're not entering into a diaconate or a church in happy times because they're not. But the good news is the greatest saints were raised up in unhappy, challenging times. So God's calling us to be saints. That's a good thing. So look at it in that lens. The saints have to work at it. It doesn't happen overnight. All right. So any more questions about that before we move on to the next kind of topic? It was a good segue to our next thing. So anybody else? Yeah, that topic deserves an hour of our time tonight because it really is just that important. All right. The topic itself of social ethics has been at the heart of Catholic moral theology from the beginning of the church. Care for the poor, the marginalized, issues of marriage and family, property, all that stuff has been there from day one. Over the last 120 years, there has been a greater emphasis though, placed in much of this in light of the encyclical Rerum Novarum, written by Pope the XIII. So Rerum Novarum, which John Paul II alludes to several times in his encyclical, 100 years after this one. Now Leo, Pope Leo himself, is a fascinating character. At the conclave for him, electing him Pope, he was an older and sickly man in 1878. Previous to Leo, Pope Pius IX had reigned for 32 years, and the Cardinals wanted a short papacy that would simply give them a holdover for a few years until a new Pope could be chosen. The Holy Spirit always has a capacity to surprise us. Leo was elected and for 25 years reigned as Pope. The fourth longest after John Paul II, Pius IX, and St. Peter. So he reigned for a long time and was incredibly important as Pope in those years because society around him in that time period underwent massive societal changes. Even in his own backyard in Italy, had gone through reunification, papal states no longer existed. Communism. And Marxism, the ideologies which are starting to take root in Europe, a harbinger of things to come and revolutions, 
that would take place. Society itself was growing from an agrarian farm-based system to one which you had new production, exploitation of worker by owners, and challenges to the very concept of the human person himself. A century later, John Paul II commented, quote, a new form of property had appeared, capital, and the new form of labor, labor for wages, characterized by high rates of production which lacked due regard for sex, age, or family situation, and were determined solely by efficiency with the view to increasing profits. So we see that the view of the human person, his dignity, his worth, his value becomes, becomes subsumed by production, industrialization. Against this backdrop, the unit 13th pen, Barum Novarum, which literally means of the new things, seeking a way to give guidance during this challenging time. So document, for example, the second, is a way for us to simply take a look at what Pope Leo was saying and how it's now being updated by John Paul II. Now, we're gonna talk a lot about rights for the next few weeks, cut in a couple of weeks. So if you understand what we're talking about with rights and the human person, the USCCB says this, the Catholic Church proclaims that human life is sacred, and that the dignity of human person is the foundation of a moral vision for society. This belief is the foundation of all principles of our social teaching. So the dignity of the human person is clear. This comes again, Genesis 1, that God makes man in his image and his likeness. Meaning all of us bear the image of the divine. Little kind of a side comment here also. When God creates humanity, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, not my our, but our, implying in a kind of a foreshadowing way there, Trinity. Do we see that going on? By the way, in the season of Advent, the first readings are Isaiah almost all the time. Isaiah is the Advent all-star. Okay, we hear from him all the time. Isaiah is writing 700 years before Jesus. And we're going to hear how Isaiah, in his visions, in his prophecies, nails it. And that Jesus fulfills all that Isaiah is talking about. So powerful. We get a sense of how Isaiah really is uh, foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. JP2 writes this. He writes, The denial of God deprives the person of his foundation and consequently leads to a reorganization of the social order without reference point to the person's dignity and responsibility. Again, if there is no creator, where do our rights come from? Then it becomes literally might makes right. If you're stronger, you dominate. If you're weaker, too bad. <laughs> so that's why I believe in a creator who has given us these rights is critical. They come from God. Thomas Jefferson, who was not a fan of Christianity, okay? we heard last week, last couple of weeks in Mass, Book of, Book of Revelation, right? 
Jefferson said, the book of Revelation, Jefferson wrote, is the rantings of a madman. <laughs> he was not a big fan of Christianity or the scriptures, but he was a deist. And it speaks about a rights that come from the creator. They are inalienable. And no human person has the right to take away or remove these rights. Totalitarian regimes seek to do that. Democracies seek to ensure them and to keep them safe in the context of what we believe as members of, of the church, members of the country, critical. Now, the great challenge we have right now, in my estimation, is we do not understand what rights mean. Rights without responsibility, without duty attached to them, becomes completely unmoored from what rights are supposed to be. The ancients, Aristotle, Plato, the great writers of Greece and Rome understood that to have a right meant a responsibility exists in relation to that right. It was Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher, who rejected that idea. Hobbes said, look, no, 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 if you have a right, you're autonomous. It belongs to you and it is not to be interfered with. The ancients believed if you have a right, it's for the common, that the highest good, for virtue, for righteousness, for duty to be done with that. But now with Hobbes, a right, I have it, belongs to me, you can't touch it. Now here's an example of this. We affirm the right to property. It's a right, no question about it. Church affirms that, private property. But if we own private property, we have a duty and a responsibility to be generous to those who don't have the good things we have. To give to charities, to give to the church, to support a philanthropy. If I have money, if I have means, I can't say I'm rich, good look at me, I'm great, now leave me alone, right? This is the theory of Ebenezer Scrooge before the ghosts come to him. <laughs> but when Scrooge sees that his all his money, his wealth, is all been for nothing, his heart is changed by that. Here's a more biblical example. There's the great parable Jesus tells of the man who has a, a whole barn full of grain. Right, and a bumper okay. crop happens that year. And he has more grain than usual. And his thought is, I build a second barn, bigger barns, and store more grain. I've been forever now. I can just eat, drink, and be merry. Grain forever. And then, of course, he dies. And God says to him, you fool. Now listen, of all the things, I do not want to hear God say to me when I die. You fool ranks high in that list. All right? It's terrifying. But the point of the gospel parable, Jesus is saying, listen, don't, yeah, I mean, you have means, you have property, you have good things. It means you have to share what you have. You cannot actually hoard it for yourself. Right to life. Same thing. I have life. I have the gift of life. I have to respect my body, respect my integrity of who I am, as well as life of other people. To have a right means a duty flows from that right. We live in a world now. There is no sense 
of duty or responsibility with rights. We speak to them as if they're these nebulous things. All you have to do is say, I have a right to this. I have a right to that. Well, says who? According to what? So we see some of the challenges here. Now, for us in America, though, the context is a little more, little more focused. John Locke, a century after Hobbes, said the same thing pretty much. But Locke said this, that we owned our bodies as a God-given right, and the state exists only to preserve life, liberty, and property. And this had an enormous effect on American jurisprudence for the next, next you know, 100 years after the Constitutional Republic was founded. The most egregious example of this property being given this enormous right was 1857 Supreme Court decision of Dred Scott v. Sanford. Now, Dred Scott was a slave who was brought from Missouri, a slave state, with its owners to Illinois and Wisconsin territories that were not, they were, they were, they were free areas. And they returned to Missouri. Dred Scott said, listen, I lived as a free man in Illinois and Wisconsin. I should be free. And he sued his master for this. And the Supreme Court, seven to two, it wasn't close. Seven to two said that black men were not included under the word citizen in the Constitution. And because of that, Dred Scott was still a slave with his masters, property to his masters. He died of tuberculosis, by the way, 18 months after that decision was made. So we see how this unbelievable focus on the absolute nature of rights has caused some real serious problems. But even at the turn of the 20th century, this became a problem. Again, rights of property were there for the rejection of employees, child labor laws, all of that was rejected for the sake of property and industrialization. On March 25th, 1911, a fire broke out at the Ash Building in Greenwich Village. The doors of the factory were locked on the outside to prevent workers from taking unauthorized breaks, and they couldn't escape. 146 people died, 123 women, 23 men most of them between the ages of 14 and 23. The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, as it is called. It is called. Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, kept right in our own city, you're from New York, um, definitely was a watershed moment in workers' rights and in beginning to, to loosen some of the hold that employers had over their workers. It was a major, major situation. Then, in the 1930s, with the New Deal, the New Deal began to also take the focus off of property rights. But when that happened, it shifted from property to personal rights. And the court said, well, property rights were defended because they were defending the personalities, the people who owned the property who created the property, there's a sense there of this new right to their own person and right to privacy as well. 
system, the outsized influence on property morphed into an outsized influence on privacy and the personal rights that a person had. And it drew on the writings of the philosopher John Stuart Mill, who said over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. Over his own body, over his own mind, the individual is sovereign. Meaning, the person literally is a law, an entity unto himself. He has absolute autonomy when it comes to rights. And we see the beginnings of this. We see all the time. But this is used in, in courts, it's used in the medium, in popular culture, the idea of this personal autonomy, individuality, no one can say anything to me. That's what's going on here when it comes to these issues that we're currently facing. All right? You know, this is part of, part of the issue we have also with, um, you know, with abortion and different you know, ideologies now. All of this is rooted in this, this mindset. All right? Questions, comments? In order for us to properly understand rights even further, we have to understand the nature of the natural law. The natural law. John 23rd in Pachaman Terrace, it's a cyclical Pachaman Terrace, stated, quote, for every fundamental human right is indestructible moral force from the natural law, which in granting it imposes a corresponding obligation. In other words, we have rights, but the natural law tells us there are obligations that flow from those rights. Natural law is a moral law that both exists by nature and is known by nature to be binding on everyone. So natural law is a moral law that both exists by nature and is known by nature to be binding on everyone. All right? Now, here is the problem. As a result of our fallen human nature, it is difficult sometimes to perceive the natural law. They were fallen, a lot of angels here. So we are corrupted because of our fallen nature. We don't always see things clearly. We need to be educated in morality to reinforce what we know is wrong to help us grow in knowledge of right and wrong. So we need it to help us to grow, know what is wrong, to grow in knowledge of what is right and wrong, to guard what we know is right, to guard what we know is right, and build upon what we know is right, and build upon what we know is right. And finally, to be challenged to act in a way we know is right. To be challenged to act in a way we know is right. Review, we're educated to know, to reinforce what we know is wrong. To help us grow in knowledge of right and wrong. 
to guard what we know is right, to build upon what we know is right, and to challenge us to act in a way we know is right. You wrote the statement, you know better. Or heard it before, right? That's still be challenging us. You know better. Why would you do this? We're children. Happens all the time. You know, you know better. Why would you do that? I don't know. Well, you know better. Don't do it again, right? So we're educating them to grow in virtue. All of this helps us to inform our conscience to properly discern what is right and wrong. Conscience must be formed. It is not something autonomous, not an oracle unto itself. Conscience is formed to judge what is right and wrong after it's been properly formed. One of the main problems today is that consciences are malformed. And people do not understand what is right and wrong, what is good or bad. And that becomes a major problem in moral theology. Now, some people say, look, if there really was a natural law, we know it. We have to be taught it. But we've been taught it, therefore, it isn't a real thing. That's like saying that if math were real, we wouldn't have to learn it. We already know it. But of course, math is real. You have to learn math, you have to learn morality. You know, kids are not born knowing good manners. Kids are not born knowing, in a sense, right and wrong. But little children, though, do have a sense inside of them on a very basic level of good and bad, right and wrong. If you have two siblings, there's a toy, one is playing with it, and one of them grabs that toy away. They scream, they yell, they cry. Why? Because they've been wrong. And some of them couldn't articulate that. They couldn't, they couldn't say that. But this is my toy. You took it from me. It's wrong. It's not right. That's a bad thing. They couldn't be able to say that. But a sense innate in them realizes, I had this toy. I enjoy it. I'm playing with it. It was taken from me. It's not right. So we see that even little children have a sense of this. Our job as priests, as deacons, as fathers, as husbands, as grandparents, is to help form the consciences of those who we are in charge of and charged with. When parents tell me, when it comes to raising their kids in the faith, they'll choose, when they're older, they'll decide. That is such foolishness. Such foolishness. If children are not educated, in the faith from a young age, they're going to believe nothing when they're older. If parents don't communicate the faith of their children, what it tells them, the kids, is the faith is not important. And children, they don't think they do, but children look up to their parents for guidance and for help and for some sense of the direction to go here. And if parents tell those children, you're kind of unmoored from this, good luck, you know, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Okay? But we see a sense how relativism plays a role here. 
If individual conscience is not formed, if individual conscience is simply what I decide is right, what I decide is wrong, apart from any kind of formation, relativism enters in. Because matter of there is no right, there is no wrong. The reality is this. Even a person who is a murderer may have some sense somewhere deep inside of them that this wasn't right. It's the wrong thing to do. It may be buried. It may be hidden in some way. There's a sense this is wrong. Gaudi Mespes, Second Vatican Council, says this. In the depths of his conscience, man detects a law which he does not impose upon himself, but which holds him to obedience, always summoning him to love good and avoid evil. The voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to his heart. Do this, shun that. For man has in his heart a law written by God to obey the very dignity of man. According to it, will be judged. Amos Best, paragraph 16. Very, very important paragraph of Vatican II. Questions, comments, anything unclear? <coughs> All good? Mother, uh, right. on the issue of relativism, yeah. uh, a lot of these uh, people's conscience is being formed by YouTube and Google and the internet. And to them, it's the truth. They see a video uh, and they say, how can it not be true? I'm watching it. Right. And we knowing better, you know, I don't want to engage in an argument uh, with somebody that to him, that's the truth. That's his absolute truth. And, and well, I know the difference. Sorry. No, no I, mean, I mean, by me not engaging in that argument, Am I considering, am I also being part of the relativism problem? A good question. One of the ways to handle this, this is a good, this is a very good point, Lucas, thank you for raising this, is when somebody says to you something that is really like beyond what is reasonable, you can ask them, well, why do you say that? You know, why do you say this or why do you say that? Have them, have them articulate, have them explain to you why they believe this. Because most times, Lucas, they can't. Most times, they've been informed by TikTok, by YouTube, by Instagram. They have no underlying foundation. It's like building a house with the windows starting first. Foundation isn't there, no walls, putting up windows. Here are the windows look nice, they're clean, they're paned. Yeah, but the foundation isn't there, it's going to collapse. So if you say to them, why do you say that? Not to be argumentative, not to cause a bad discussion, but to simply engage them. So someone says to you, I believe that two men who love one another should get married. Okay, why do you say that? Well, because they love one another. All right, so what makes you think that that's enough? Well, love is love. Uh huh. So let me ask you a question. If, if people, if, if, you have, if I have four people who are in love with one another, should they get married? Well, 
I'm not saying that's not what I'm talking about. Well, wait a minute though. You said love is love. So, of course, the point does that, does that apply? Well, you know, so the point of saying this, Lucas, is that there are ways of like challenging them without being argumentative. And the question, why do you say that? What makes you think that? Oftentimes force them to articulate what they probably can't articulate. A lot of them are good at parroting, not good at thinking. So they're very good at being able to parrot what they heard on YouTube or a video. And most times, the vacuous nature of what you find on YouTube, what you find on these videos, on social media, is so empty of real content that any kind of even basic argument can help you to be able to establish some sort of of uh, discussion with them that may help them to see things a bit differently. And the comments about that and your ideas or perhaps experiences you've had with that, your own life or families? Yes, uh, with, with families and, and even uh, not, not necessarily in the issue of gay marriage. The issue of abortion, abortion comes up a lot that the woman tries to choose. And uh, nowadays, with so many conspiracy theories, uh, even with, with friends uh, uh, in the church, mm-hmm. people uh, uh, talking about prophecies, how uh, sort of like the world is coming to an end uh, right. type of prophecies, because this is why they, they see people in, on, on YouTube. And... Right. right. Well, a um, couple of things that the first is that Jesus is kind of clear in the Gospels that if someone is saying the world is going to end now, uh, don't believe them. So that's probably a good indication of saying, listen, Jesus says it. I didn't say it. I'm saying Jesus said it. I'm taking his word for it. So Jesus is going to God. So I'm going with that. When it comes to abortion, a woman's right to choose. Okay, choose what? Choose what? Well, choose, choose yeah. What are you going to do? Well, choose abortion. Well, what does that mean? Push them. Push them on that. Because that is one, again, you with charity. So important. So important. Charity, charity, charity. It is easy for us to get sarcastic, to get obnoxious, to get abrasive. I know I've been there, I've done it myself. It gets you nowhere fast. But when you are charitable and seeking to find an answer, to engage a person in dialogue, to engage a person in discussion, you get a much better chance of leaving at least in an amicable way rather than leaving with, you know, curse words being exchanged as you part. These are heated, they're heated things. And we get passionate about it, we should get passionate about it. But it can cause us to kind of not be clear, not be, not be too um, charitable in our approach. That can be problematic. Doug, you had a question or well, I was just thinking, I know with, I've got four kids that are all in their 20s. And one of the things I remember talking to them about probably six or eight months ago was the infiltration of social media by world powers, basically, who are undermining our entire culture on a daily basis. And, you know, like TikTok and YouTube, they're filled with infiltrations designed to undermine American culture and our values. And you have to be 
I mean, here I am preaching, but I mean, I'm trying to suggest to these 20 year olds that they can't believe everything they see or everything they hear as being legitimate. Facebook is the news. The computer say again? They say Facebook. A lot of people get the news from Facebook. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely do. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And the problem is with YouTube especially, it uses an algorithm. So if I put in YouTube, um, Joe Biden victory speech, okay? It now assumes I'm a Joe Biden supporter. And I'm gonna get videos about Joe Biden, Democratic Party, liberal causes. If I put in Donald Trump's uh, COVID, uh, you know, vaccine speech, I'm gonna get all kinds of videos you know, on Trump, on the Electoral College, on the voter fraud stuff. So now I'm being balkanized into my own echo chamber and no other voices are being heard. You, you saw that documentary, yeah, Peter. I was gonna say you saw the documentary on I think it was Netflix. On yeah, social- I haven't seen it yet, but I heard about it. No, I'm saying it tells you exactly how they monitor everything you do and feed you to keep you on your phones, and they know everything about your lifestyle, and they put those ads in there. And when you're not even on your phone, they beep you, give you a little thing to get you on there. Mm-hmm. I will tell you something. You're right, Peter. I will tell you, these damn devices are awful. Yesterday I was at a, um, a dinner with some young adult thinking about the priesthood. And it's dinner, it's kind of a couple of talks, a whole hour. Whenever we weren't doing something, their phones almost as a reflex were out. It's like they can't not be entertained looking at their phone checking their Snapchat, checking their Twitter, checking their Instagram page. It's like, oh, mercy. So really, it is a, it's a serious problem. And these things are as addictive as anything I've ever seen, that's for sure. And it causes a real serious problem when it comes to trying to get people engaged when they're constantly looking at their phone and being, being focused on uh, social media and all the other garbage that is out there. It's a real, real issue. Okay. Talking about man's dignity, with his conscience, with his rights, man is the only creature created for himself, as an end in himself. Everything else in the created world is created for something else. The animals, part of God's creation, they're wonderful, they're great, love them, dogs especially, but the fact of the matter is, animals do not have the same rights, the same um, value, dignity that humanity has. In the garden, Adam is told to have dominion over all the animals in the garden, to name all of them. Here's the problem. Believe this or not, this is the truth they make themselves. Some today challenge this idea of humanity's superiority over nature. And they accuse us of something called speciesism. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Not making this up. Uh, Peter Singer at Princeton University, I said humans 
are not superior and have no more dignity than any other animal. And to say they do is akin to racism or sexism. That one person, one being is superior to another, which is striking. A singer who's an atheist, Singer says that a high-functioning chimpanzee has more right to life than a Down syndrome baby does. That should horrify us. Because it is horrifying. You know, and that's another thing. If we, if we have this idea of speciesism, there should be no endangered species list. What that does is value some animals over other animals. If they're going to go extinct, too bad. I can't value the gazelle over the sea otter. I'm not going to value a horse over a porcupine caribou. (laughs) So if we're going to have speciesism, let's apply it across the board. Additionally, should I prosecute a lion who kills a zebra in the Serengeti? Because zebra has to life. And the lion killed it. So we see how, how stupid, how insane this gets. But I'm reminded of the of um, Dostoevsky, who said, when there is no God, anything is possible. We lose God, everything else goes out the window with it. It becomes a major issue in being able to have a, have a sense of society and the good of society. All right. Questions or comments about any of that speciesism? Real thing, really talked about. I'm making this up, which I were, but I'm not. All right. Now, speaking about the idea of human dignity, we come to the importance then of the family. We discussed earlier, way back in like September, the ideas of marriage, marital ethics, this is not ethics. This is more policy when it comes to the family. Humans are created to be social. And humanity is the first, the family rather, is the first society we are born into. Is someone, you're right, okay. It's the first society we're born into. The catechism says this, paragraph 1879, it says the human person needs to live in society. Society is not for him an extraneous addition, but a requirement of his nature. Through the exchange with others, mutual service and dialogue with his brethren, man develops his potential. He best responds to his vocation. Paragraph 1879, the family is the first society we encounter. The scriptures bear witness to this. In Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul talks about the household codes and the roles that happen within a family. The husband as the head of the family. The wife as the heart of the family. They have roles out of reverence for Christ for one another and for the children. The value of a husband and wife, mom and dad, you cannot supplant that. Men and women, 
are different. Spoiler alert. All right? We think differently, we had different reactions. The parish past weekend, I was at a parish up in South Centerville, the Mass. And the sacristan was there. His wife is one of the cantors of the parish. And they have six children. Two are in college, four that are younger at home still. And the college kids are home from college now for their duration until, until after Christmas. So I said to the wife, oh, isn't it great? Your kids are home, they have a full nest again. And he goes, yeah, my, 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 my heart is full because the house is full. Wow, beautiful, no? So husband said, Mike, isn't it great? The kids are home for college. And Mike's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great they're home for college, yeah, wonderful. So like, men have a different, different realities, different responses to, to reality around us. So the value of this cannot be overstated. The Second Vatican Council talks about it. It's a, long, a long section here from document on religious liberty, but worth quoting the whole thing. Document says this, the family, since it is a society in its own original right, has the right freely to live its own domestic religious life under the guidance of parents. Parents, moreover, have the right to determine in accordance with their own religious beliefs, the kind of religious education their children are to receive. Government, in consequence, must acknowledge the right of parents to make a genuinely free choice of schools and of other means of education. And the use of this freedom of choice is not to be made a reason for imposing unjust burdens upon parents, whether directly or indirectly. Besides, the right of parents, besides, the right of parents are violated if their children are forced to attend lessons or instructions which are not in agreement with their religious beliefs, or if in a single system of education, which all religious formation is excluded, is imposed upon all. Paragraph 5 of Document Vatican II on Religious Liberty. What it's saying there is government exists for the family not family for the government. And the government has an obligation to protect the rights of families. And frankly, it has a it has a reason for doing so, for supporting marriage, supporting family. Marriage is a comprehensive union. It's a comprehensive union. It is the only friendship that the law protects and the law gives certain rights to. It's comprehensive in this sense. I have friends whom I love dearly, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We're connected. We're connected. No question about it. But a married couple, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and bodily. And that bodily union brings forth new life. It's a unique kind of friendship. And because of that, laws are created to benefit that unique union, that unique friendship. The only reason why laws are written to protect families, to protect marriage, to protect you know, parents are because they bring about children. Marriage under the law, in a sense, is two benefits of married life here that the law wants to, wants to defend. 
The first marriage is permanence. But the couples stay together. It's a really important idea. When a couple is together, the benefits simply cannot be overstated. For example, when a young man is raised without a father present to him, okay, 70% of all prisoners incarcerated today grew up without fathers. That's the reality. It's tragic. It's tragic. And then it disproportionately affects minorities, which is even more, more tragic, frankly. So 70%. Now, why is that? Well, for a young man, what does a dad do? A good father, at least. A good father shows his son respect for his wife, respect for his family. He channels his male aggressive instinct to defend his family. He channels that instinct not to being irresponsible on the street doing terrible things, but instead channeling it to protect his family. His son sees his father with his frustrations, his difficulties, his discouragement, handling it in a mature, respectful way. And he realizes that I want to act this way as well. And because of that, young man learns from his father how to be a responsible father and a responsible parent. When a young man has his father around, there was much less incidence of a lot of the problems that occur amongst young people today. The problem is we live now with the crisis of fathers. No question about it. Not only in being physically there, but emotionally and spiritually there also. One of the main problems, fellas, today in priestly formation is how many young men in seminary have not had good, strong, or present father figures. Learning to be a dad is not easy. Learning to be a father is not easy. But if we have a father who trained us well, gave us a good example, got a much better shot at being successful, being decent as a dad, if we didn't have that. It is true that uncles, godparents step in and do amazing work in that realm. But the reality is you cannot overvalue the importance of having a dad who is there. And for girls, it's the same value. For young women, for the father, the father who is not present for them, it's a 35% rate of unwed teenage pregnancy. For young women whose dads were there, it's 5%. The massive difference. So why is that? Well, again, the daughter sees her dad loving her mother, defending her mother, and thinks to herself, I want a man like that as my husband. I want a man who respects me like that. Furthermore, when a dad is present, he also is defensive of his daughters to weed out any boyfriends who might be 
concerning to him, at least when he can, when it's possible. Not just not, but it is to try the best he can. Additionally, she sees her father, who is the kind of person who shows her love and respect and devotion. If dad doesn't do that, it's going to be supplemented by somebody else, a man who's not caring for her. But she desires male affection. She desires male bonding. Her dad is there for her. If he's not, somebody else will be. And it won't end well. So we see, we see how important a dad is in the life of his children. It cannot be overstated. So permanence, to keep the family together. Before you had, in the 1960s, that we came into effect, no-fault divorce. Lawyers talk about the three A's of divorce. Adultery, abandonment, abuse. Those are the three reasons for getting a divorce. Adultery, abandonment, abuse. All three of those, by the way, are valid reasons, in some cases, for getting out, if you have to. There are times when it's dangerous to remain. But no-fault divorce changed the metric entirely. No-fault divorce says, eh, anything. Anything. We, 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 we go apart. The love died. When we ask couples before marriage, what does the term death do us part mean? They would tell us. It means when the spouse physically is dead. Because some couples believe when the love dies, the marriage is over. Well, I mean, that's kind of a problem because love can be an emotional thing. So what does love dying even look like? What does that mean? So we see how that becomes a challenge. So permanence, it is the benefit of society to keep couples together. Children do better with two parents. Every statistic bears that out. It's just a reality. Now, if you're ever preaching on this, when it comes to you know homily about marriage or homily about family life, make sure, make sure you don't forget to praise the heroic work single parents do. In the congregation, you're going to have moms who were abandoned, whose husbands died maybe, and are left raising kids by themselves. Make sure, make sure, make sure you don't leave them out. You can praise the ideal without diminishing the exception. You can praise the ideal without diminishing the exception. It's very important because some musical parents are doing heroic work out there and we never want to diminish what they're doing. Okay? So permanence. Second major factor when it comes to the society's benefit. Exclusivity. Meaning sexual exclusivity. You're together, one man, one woman. This is it. All you have. Nobody else. Because if you don't have that, what you're going to have are several pregnancies with the father not present. Whereas if they're married together and exclusive, you know 
this child belongs to this man. This woman's child is mine to carry. If you eliminate that, you have a lot of problems in terms of what is the father's role now? What is the father's responsibility now? How does it look? How does this work? You have multiple fathers of multiple children among women or different realities of that. Here again, gentlemen, we see the difference with the gay marriage understanding of this. Andrew Sullivan, who is a well-known commentator of the kind of gay marriage um, cause, has said that one of the great benefits for heterosexual couples is to learn from same-sex couples that monogamy isn't essential. You can have an open marriage because after all, we all need an outlet every so often. We all need somebody else to love. So we can grow from that. Because in the gay community, the idea of one partner for life just is not the reality. It does not happen. In fact, in divorces, women are the ones usually who initiate the divorce. So if you have two married, married women, there's a greater incidence there of there being a divorce. Because both of them are part of that part of that reality which is more prone to want a divorce. Men are more prone to infidelity. So if you have two men in a marriage, you have a greater chance of infidelity. So we see that there's all kinds of problems that exist here. And again, if you have a you know, and what makes it, what makes two people, right? If marriage is no longer a male and a female, why two? We're not three or four or five. I mean, if, if gender, if sex is no longer constitutive, why is number? How about your pets? Well, that's all different. Yeah, that's that's the extreme. Yeah, but the, the reality is, um, <coughs> number becomes yeah, number becomes an issue. Plus, if my marriage is predicated on my sexual identity, then if I say that I am bisexual, then by nature I should have a husband and a wife to meet my sexual identity my sexual preference, my sexual needs. Again, once we say that marriage is no longer a man and a woman, everything else goes out the window. Everything else is negotiable. So these are the challenges that we face in this reality. Now, one of the main factors for parents, as Vatican II talks about, is the education of their children. At a kid's baptism, when the parents are blessed at the end of the rite, the priest or deacon says to the parents, you are the first teachers of your children the faith, but you also be the best of teachers. So parents are the ones who begin to impart that faith to their children, education to their children begins at home. You know, in the Advent season, the only thing about being a kid growing up in Brooklyn, we had an Advent wreath. 
in our house. And every night during Advent, we had a rosary, a reading from scripture, lit a candle, and it taught me as a kid the value of this four-week season leading up to Christmas. But Advent is not pre-Christmas. Advent is a season unto itself, looking forward to Christmas. So I was taught well in the ways of the faith. But the challenge, as Vatican II talks about, is how often today, in public school especially, you have major problems with kids being taught for eight hours a day, values that are completely inconsistent with what they're taught at home. And their friends believe certain things, they're taught by teachers who believe certain things, and they become indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking about the world. And Catholic school, as good as it can be, is not immune from this either. One of the major issues today with Catholic schools is a strong Catholic identity. If a person came in to our school of Annunciation, they would know this is a Catholic school. They would see our billboards, they would see our courses in the classrooms, they would see our, our lesson plans, they would know this is a Catholic school. Some Catholic schools, well, a little wishy-washy about that, I don't know. And as you get higher up, it gets worse and worse. Catholic colleges today are, in many cases, nothing short of disgraceful when it comes to Catholic identity. In 1967, there was a conference in Wisconsin, the Lando Lakes Conference. The president of Notre Dame University was the kind of leader of the conference. At the conference of Catholic colleges and universities at this Lando Lakes Conference, they had a document. A document essentially said, we no longer are going to be bound by fidelity to the church and the church teaching. In the name of academic freedom, in the name of our own disciplines, we no longer are going to be bound by the Catholic Church and her teachings on things. Severing themselves from the church. So what you have now is a place like Fordham, which will say, you know, a school in the Jesuit tradition, what, what does it even mean? Or a school in the Dominican tradition, what about the Catholic tradition? What is this? So what you have are schools now where it is not uncommon. You have teachers who have no belief at all, no faith at all. Schools where the crosses have been pulled off of the walls, where secular events go on. I went to a Catholic college. I went to Siena College up near Albany. Siena College, when I graduated, every week, every year, had Pride Week to celebrate the gay lifestyle. In the pulpit, I heard friars say things like, as long as you're monogamous, if you're gay, it's all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a teacher with the Gospels who referred to the San Damiano cross, all the characters, you know, Franciscan cross, referred to the same as the Where's Waldo cross. Catholic school, 
Way to go. Way to go. In the courses there, Santa had a, has a great um, pre-med program. So I had friends of mine who took evolutionary biology to have to take his pre-med. And they were taught in evolutionary biology, the prof felt it important to take shots at religion, at creation, at Genesis. What, what's going on here? This is not unique. I mean, Santa is not unique at all. In fact, Notre Dame, Catholic Notre Dame, Our Lady, right, just hired on the faculty, uh, Pete Buttigieg, former mayor of South of Indiana. And again, I'm not thinking of politics here, about politics. Buttigieg is a former Catholic who's married to his husband, who has openly advocated the removal of tax-exempt status for churches if they don't believe in gay marriage. Now, on faculty at Notre Dame, he'll be educating young Catholics. Way to go. Way to go. You know, and it's tragic because parents and their kids to a Catholic school thinking they're getting good education, they're getting a good Catholic identity, and they go for Christmas and they're atheists and wonder what the hell happened to Catholic school. Yeah, not really. There were only about a dozen truly Catholic schools that are out there in the U.S. at least right now. Most of them are a joke. Most of them are a complete abomination when it comes to what they're doing to young people, how they're poisoning their minds against the truth, against the church, against the faith. So it's a shame. When I went to Siena, I was away in Rome for a semester. I came back from Rome. And I was in, entering a velocity contest. In a velocity contest, the question they asked the students to write about was, are violence and aggression necessary elements of human nature? That was the question that I was thrown out there. So I wrote a paper you know, for the contest, and I wrote it, uh, violence and aggression in light of inherently good human nature and a benevolent creator. I wrote it. The one first place. I was graduating. I was asked by the board of trustees to give a presentation to the higher ups at the college about the paper. So I did a whole presentation about the paper, my topic, my thesis, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. I was then asked afterwards, Chris, you're graduating. What are your plans? I said, oh, I'm going to a seminary. And you would think at a Catholic school, It'd be, ah, oh, it's great, good for you, that's wonderful, Chris, good for you, that's a wonderful thing to do, it's great. The reaction, like I just said, I'm going to become a hobo, you know, wander the countryside, you have to land, the next few years, see what happens. And they were like, oh, really? Oh, 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 okay. It's a Catholic school. What's happening here? So there's no value placed on religiosity. Meanwhile, other places like Steubenville in Ohio, remarkable incredible job that place is like insane how good they are the students there many of them stay on campus the whole summer for the conferences to work the conferences because they love being there but the environment there is like so catholic it's insane it's great there are many Ave maria in florida a great university there are many benedictine college in um, kansas christendom in virginia Thomas Aquinas in California now, at the place in Massachusetts. There are good places that are out there. 
they're few and far between. And it's sad. We're betraying our youth because of this. So it becomes a real, um, you know, sad factor with education, how it's being betrayed. The parents have the first obligation to, uh, to raise their children in the ways of the faith. And it's not instead of the men and women are different. And the whole transgender thing is causing even more concern and more confusion and more problems. Doctors now are questioning how to even treat patients because of, are they men? Are they women? Are they this or they that? So it becomes even a challenge from that perspective. So there are so many angles, so many challenges that are there. No question. Okay. The family builds up the good of society. Family that is run well, children are raised well, benefits society. It benefits the common good. Another element we speak about a lot when it comes to Catholic social teaching, the common good. In his document, Mater et Magistra, John 23rd, said the common good is the sum total of social conditions. The sum total of social conditions which allow people, which allow people either as groups or as individuals, either as groups or as individuals to reach their fulfillment, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. The sum total of social conditions which allow people either as groups or as individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. In this sense, society and the family work in tandem, work together. The catechism in paragraph 1925 says this, the common good consists of three essential elements. One, respect for and promotion of the fundamental rights of the person, prosperity or the development of the spiritual and temporal goods of society. Common good consists of three essential elements. One, respect for and promotion of the fundamental rights of the person. Two, prosperity or the development of the spiritual and temporal goods of society. Three, the peace and security of the group and of its members. Three, the peace and security of the group and of its members. Well, we are all equal in the sight of God. We are not equal in the gifts 
talents, and abilities we have. But we are all equal in the sight of God. We are not equal in the gifts, talents, and abilities that we have. These differences, these differences and inequities, these differences and inequities are not meant are not meant to foster resentment. These differences and inequities are not meant to foster resentment or class struggle, but rather to show the need for all of us. Rather to show the need for all of us to work together for the good of society. So the need for all of us to work together for the good of society. While there is inequality and injustice, while there is inequality and injustice, care should be taken to work towards a greater sense of justice. While there is inequality and injustice, care should be taken to work together toward a greater sense of justice. Gaudi Miss Bess in paragraph 25, I'll just quote it, I'll write, write it down and read it to you guys. Gaudi Miss Bess says this Through equal dignity as persons demands that we strive for fairer and more humane conditions. Excessive economic and social disparity between individuals and peoples of the one human race is a source of scandal and militates against social justice equity, human dignity, as well as social and international peace. So the common good is meant to foster a more just society, but focusing not just on things here, but on the world to come. If we leave out the spiritual capacity, the spiritual element of society, the common good, we lose a sense of that. Here's an analogy. Think about a sports team. On the sports team, Every player wants to do their best, be an all-star, succeed, but they work together for the good of the team. Society, same thing, like a sports team, working together for the good of the team. Unless you're the Jets, then it's a mess. But a Giants fan, I know, I... Poor Jets, I feel bad for their fans, the poor people are just, but by the Jets, God bless them, their suffering is redemptive, so <laughs> it helps. How are the Giants in first place, by the way? I know, well, listen, the, bank. the Eagles are playing now, so the Eagles the Eagles win tonight, they're out of first place, but the Eagles are the Seahawks, so I, I, I hope that we'll be in first place. Uh, oh, we need Seattle to lose. What's oh, yeah, what the record, though? They're consistent. Four seven. <laughs> oh, the Jets? Do you mean or the Giants? Uh, How much? Oh, you're Jeff, all right. Woo. Jeff fan. That's okay. Have pity on me. I do have pity on you, Peter. It's tough. I, I, <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. Peter is also a Mets fan. Who is? Also a Mets fan. I'm also a Knicks fan. I'm also a Ranger fan. And this is why God's made them all stink. So I become a deacon because I don't like sports anymore. 
I get no pleasure out of it. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I'm I'm messing. I'm Mets and I'm Giants. So I have at least one half of the equation is okay. But what they have the equation is kind of rough. But Steve Cohen's here now, and he'll bring us to the promised land. So Steve Cohen, worth $14.5 billion, common good, but it's a good use. Don't hoard it, right? So Uncle Steve. Oh, part of Uncle Steve, man. We love him. All so, right. Father, yeah, you're a big fan because you grew up in Brooklyn, right? That's correct, yeah. My dad was a Dodger fan before, you know, of course, Brooklyn. Yeah. So. My father was a Dodger fan. I born and raised in Brooklyn. Okay. That's why. And none of them became Yankee fans. No. No, no, no. Nah. It's a wall, man. Can't be doing that. <laughs> All right. I'll tell you what. We're done for tonight. Well, that's a good note to end on. I'm tired of talking. They're listening to me, I'm sure. So I'll stay on for. Is it Doug? Will you talk to me? Or who you talk to me? I just need two minutes. Oh, it's Chris. Chris. No problem, Chris. Yeah. So. We can answer Chris's question. Go ahead, Chris. What's your? It's you can, on, do it, can do it later on. What's up to you? Uh, yeah, it's on the paper. I, I don't want to bore the whole class with it. Okay. So you guys I, can. I haven't said anything tonight, so I just want to end on this note. All I can say is that the Seahawks are salivating that they're playing the Jets tonight and the Giants next week. Oh, the Eagles tonight. Eagles. Oh, oh yeah, they, they are. We need Seattle to lose. They should be. They should be because they're a better team than we are. So. No question about it. All right, everybody. I shouldn't have, have a good night. We'll see you next week. Thanks. One more to go. Last class last week. And we're done. We're almost there. Here's a gun. Not